0: The Chaz Chop returns, and this time it comes for the takings clause. Walter Olson from the Cato Institute joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, audience. Welcome back. We have an interesting show for you today. The uh, the Chaz Chop has returned, and no, that doesn't mean the protester occupation of Seattle's Capitol Hill area has come back. We're actually talking about that related case that stemmed from that. A bunch of Seattle businesses got together to sue the city for not protecting their interests during that protest, and apparently, it's taken a bit of a weird turn, which caught my eye when I was uh, doing some uh, research for show ideas uh, for today's episode. And it looks like the plaintiffs are actually making a takings claim, despite the fact that they got their property back. So what does that mean? I'm not sure, but luckily we have a nice guest. He's an expert, Walter Olson, senior fellow from the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies joining us. Welcome, sir. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, thank you for uh, writing the article, and I and I think you cited some really nice work also that was from the Volokh Conspiracy blog, which I think laid out the issue pretty nicely. And so we had done a show a little bit ago on this, and it was titled "Suing Seattle Over Chaz Chop." And if anybody hasn't had opportunity, pretty good show. Kind of walks you through what happened here. But anyway, you know, we talked with the plaintiffs' attorneys, uh, Patty Eakes and Angelo Calphone. They they walked us through, and at the time it looked like it was going to be a class action lawsuit, but before before we get into some introductory questions, let me set the background here for listeners that may have lost uh, track of that story in our rapidly moving news cycle. So in June, you know, during uh, the summer, uh, there were some protests around the country. I'm sure everybody remembers that they were related to George Floyd's death uh, during his arrest in Minneapolis. And so one of these protests uh, found its way out to Seattle and they clashed with police. And on June 8th, Seattle made this uh, rather controversial call to abandon their police station at the East Precinct. And so protesters after that took over this area of Capitol Hill and they designated a no-cop area, uh, their words, and it was uh, called the CHAZ, and that was short for Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And for some reason, they rebranded somewhere in there uh, shortly thereafter to be CHOP. And, of course, that was short for Capitol Hill Organized Protest. But basically, this was 16 Blocks of occupied territory that went on until July first, when Seattle finally decided to end that occupation. But in the meantime, people lost a lot of money and property was damaged. And so, anyway, th- thank you for your patience on that, Walter. I just wanted to set the stage there. But uh, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before the show, and it sounds like there's been some evolution on this case since we last talked with the plaintiffs' attorneys. So, you know, walk us through that, catch us up with where we are today.
1: Well, it was interesting because it went before federal judge Thomas Zilly, uh, Western District of Washington, and he let many of the claims go forward. And not all of them, but he said that they could indeed uh, proceed with discovery to prove due process violations and a uh, takings claim. And that got a lot of people's interest because from the descriptions of the case, it wasn't clear that they were going to be allowed to sue the city. And if so, on, on what theories, the due process claims and the takings claim raise somewhat different issues, but ones with a lot of implications for other litigants, potentially, who have their own grievances against the way government has treated them.
0: Yeah, you know, what caught my eye with this is it seems like potentially there is room to extend what a taking might be under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. Of course, that applies to the states and local governments via the 14th Amendment. So, you know, walk us through, if you can there, Walter, you know, just some of the factors that uh, supported this takings claim, even though the plaintiffs uh, eventually got their property back. Well, those of you who follow so-called regulatory takings know that there's been a whole generations
1: worth of conflict about the question of whether the Takings Clause, which clearly does protect you and entitle you to compensation, if the government seizes some of your property permanently or if it lets someone else, like a railroad, seize it permanently for some sort of public purpose. What happens if you've lost use of it only temporarily? What is if they've taken away some of your rights to use it but not others? And Takings law under the famous Penn Central decision starts out pretty hostile to the landowner, pretty hostile to the business owner, because it tends not to provide compensation unless there has been a physical occupation, as they call it. It's, you know, something has physically been forced onto your property, whether federal agents or maybe uh, a, a flood of water opened by a dam or something. But, but it's got to be an occupation in most cases. And it can't just be that your property has become less usable because of some regulation. In an urban setting, think of a curfew, for example. Uh, The city might announce a curfew, restaurant's business collapses, terrible for the restaurant, no right to sue, though. And here you get differences between takings uh, that they will compensate and things that simply are really bad for property owners that governments do. They look at whether there's been an occupation. They look at, on the question of temporary versus permanent, definitely easier to set up a takings claim if you've lost control permanently of some aspect of your property, harder if it's temporary, but they will look at the circumstances. For example, the courts will generally let the government take it without compensation in emergency situations. Let's say they're sealing off your block because they're trying to catch a a criminal or they're trying to put out a fire. You probably won't get compensation for losing the use of your property for the evening. But if it's either regular and uh, repeated, or alternatively, if it's uh, prolonged without some good public safety emergency, then they do begin to look at maybe you've been ousted in a way that that makes a taking. Now, the takings part is, is half of it. The other half, which does tie in, is have you suffered a constitutionally compensable injury when the government fails to protect you from crime? And we all immediately think of Deshaney versus Winnebago County, the famous case Uh, in which Justice Blackman dissented from the majority's holding, that no, even in very tragic circumstances, a kid who was mauled by a family member, potentially after neglect or or neglected the situation by the county social welfare thing, he didn't have a right to sue. And uh, and that reflects the wider background that in general, with some exceptions, there is no constitutional obligation to protect you from crime. The city government can sit back and be derelict, be irresponsible. Someone can mug you, someone can burglarize you. And the general rule is that the city won't have to pay. Now the question is whether the business owners can fit this into one of the
0: exceptions to the general De Cheney rule. Yeah, and that was the interesting part to me. So it sort of gets over this sort of no man's land, sort of crosses the Rubicon. And so let me just kind of paraphrase what you just said there. So generally speaking, if a uh, private actor steals your car, the, the government, the police department, if they're negligent in their duties and they're just really bad at doing their job, you can't sue them because someone else stole your car. Now, most of us understand that when there's a taking according to a public utility or a railroad even if the railroad is responsible for it, if the government's acting in conjunction with that, you can sue the government for a taking of your property. In this case, you have a couple, a double whammy. You have the temporary action, you know, the, the plaintiffs got their property back, but you also have this action where these uh, these protesters were the ones really acting. And so the city is being sued because they went an extra step. It wasn't just dereliction of duty. They actually Acted overtly uh, in a way that this is what the plaintiffs are alleging to assist the protesters in this occupation. So maybe you could share some of the examples of how Seattle, uh, I guess, not aided, abetted, but, you know, supported these protesters uh, to the point where we might be able to bridge this Rubicon. Exactly. And there are a lot of allegations, and some of them might wind up standing and some falling. But
1: the idea is, over on the due process side, that they might have helped create a so-called state-created danger. That's the big exception to the Duchenne immunity, is that if the state has itself helped to create the danger that you fall victim to, then maybe you can sue after all. And in the Seattle case, and the the judge marches through not only various verbal ways in which Mayor Jenny Durkan kind of praised, the occupation, suggested that it was fine with the city if it went on and if it seized more things in the neighborhood and sort of belittled compl- concerns about crime, even as crime began to spiral a lot of control in, in the area. But obviously verbal is not good enough. You need more overt action by the city. And so they list ways in which the city lent equipment, nighttime lighting. I had no idea that the city was <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly sending in nighttime lighting so that the That's activists all the could have more, yeah, more of a party scene, you know, uh, so that it could become more of an alternative space. Porta potties now, you know, I, I guess considering that one of the complaints was human waste uh, being left all around the neighborhood. You, know, you mixed feelings about maybe the porta-potties were necessary, but a bunch of other things. And the one that I come back to, because it also takes us around to the takings issues, is the city apparently gave the activists and gave them control of barriers with which to close off streets, uh, with which to establish their control of sometimes checkpoints, but certainly restriction of movement. Now, that's interesting. That's an overt action in that it's not as if they would have had anything near as good as the types of traffic barriers that the city could give them they might have as in les misérables or something you know they might have put put cafe chairs and piled up in in a, in a heap but but it is an overt affirmative helping action for the city to have given them equipment of that and and of a few other sorts so you You edge closer to the point at which they might allege that it's a, or they might try to prove that it's a state-created danger, but you also edge towards some of the more appealing takings theories, which have to do with physically keeping you or maybe your customers or your clients from getting into your property. And in fact, I think those are some of the strongest cases and some of the things that are most likely to survive if any of the claims survive. They say, in the case of particular businesses, repair people, service people, as well as our customers and clients, could not physically get into our offices because of the barricades and the street closures that the city had connived in. Uh, We couldn't get into our own residences sometimes. Now, at that point, you begin moving away from just the city has badly governed itself and you begin getting closer toward, I have been cut off from the legitimate enjoyment of my property. And there, again, you get closer to a traditional takings claim.
0: Yeah, I think that was, uh, in terms of the the actual actions, the supplying of barriers to me was the most direct to the harm suffered. And exactly right. They created these pinch points and people were not allowed to get in and go utilize uh, their property. Uh, customers were not, you know, they were made to feel pretty unsafe and you had to go through these checkpoints to get to a business that you wanted to frequent. So that to me, that seemed the most direct. So i got another question for you. This is just a matter of personal curiosity. And I did ask the attorneys the same question, but, uh, you know, why do you think that these plaintiffs did not sue directly the protesters and and instead decided to go against the city? It seems like an uphill battle, you know, this takings clause and some of these other claims that they made, but they do have a direct lawsuit against the very people that kept them out of their own storefronts and residences. Well, this question, of course, comes up in an awful lot of
1: litigation, which is why aren't you suing the obviously guiltiest people and instead suing the deep pocket? Now, I'm not going to say that this is a deep pocket claim as such, uh, who knows whether or not it will get money. But it does have a couple of things in common with defendant selection in many cases, which is it's not clear that they could always identify the worst wrongdoers. They've got instances that they recite of burglaries, of vandalism, of people that they couldn't chase off their property for hours and days at a time, but they might not be able to identify those people. And if they did identify them, they might be judgment proof. So you would be inviting a kind of wild goose chase in which even if they got the names and even if they established order to serve process, they might just be spending a lot of money on lawyers for nothing. The city, on the other hand, even if not as guilty as some of the activists, has an address where you can sue it. It's got <laughs> taxpayers who have to respond if there's a judgment. And also beyond that, it's the principle of the thing. And I think this is, I I can't speak for them, obviously, they they have their own rationale. But if I were them, I would say part of the reason for filing a suit like this is the principle of the thing to establish that the city did wrong, to teach
0: the city that it must not make the same decisions if this comes up again. Well, last question for you, and I know it's early and I know that, uh, you know, these claims are allowed to proceed and obviously a long ways away from any permanent resolution here. But uh, what are your predictions for the case? How do you think things will turn out? We're at the stage where it's plaintiff's allegations and we have not heard the city's defense. So
1: everything is very preliminary and the city may have excellent defenses and excellent evidence to offer. So a lot of this could be tossed out. And as they develop evidence, probably many of the individual business claims will fall by the wayside. A lot of people will be watching, though, because if this is such a different fact pattern, in fact, in trying to figure out what precedent might control, it's not that easy to think of instances in which there has been civil disorder of this sort, a defiance of the police, that have had as much cooperation from the civic authorities. Obviously, it's one thing if there's a riot and the city simply loses control, but it's very unusual for the city to actively help it out. So I'm not sure where they're going to be casting around for precedence on either side. And that will be part of
0: the educational aspect of the case to find out how they argue it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Walter. It was great having you on. Thank you. And thank you listeners for tuning in. And in case you're interested, we'll cite our sources for this episode on our website, LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can read all that for yourself. And I do want to say a big thank you to Molly McDonough, our producer and our ever- awesome production team for all their hard work. And last, I have some hat tips to make. And so, obviously, Walter, I got a couple of hat tips here for some of the uh, the links that showed up in your uh, piece there. But I want to first thank the Voloff Conspiracy. Uh, There's a couple posts there. Ilya Somin, which cited to another one by Eugene Volokh. We've had Eugene Volokh on before, but those were pretty instructive. So recommend checking those out. They'll be in the show notes. And I do also want to say thank you to Cornell Law School. Not my alma mater, but they do have the Legal Information Institute. I got a little bit of a refresher course on the Fifth Amendment and the take is clause. So thank you all for making my job much easier. And that's all the time we have for today. This has been legal talk today. I'm Lawrence Clutty. Have a great day, everybody.